Have you guys enjoyed the conference? Amen. Amen. It's been good to be with you. I've been uh, grateful to be the brunt of all the bantering uh, as the source of your joy today, this week. No, actually, Mark and I, uh, we were in Hawaii doing that uh, a while back uh, at a conference, and uh, a lady who was a reporter for a large, or for the Federalist uh, magazine, maybe familiar with this, sitting at the table with us, and she leans over in the middle of this back and forth, and she's like, do you guys know each other? I said, ma'am, this happens all the time. In fact, it, it's a form of sanctification for me. But anyway, it's good to be with you. It's good. You've heard of the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's three times I pleaded with the Lord, take him away. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. But anyway, I'm not here to talk about that. Uh, I'm here to talk about something that I am deeply passionate about. And, and I'm going to share my testimony with you in just a moment. And you will hear why I am so passionate about making disciples. I want to talk to you today about a biblical plan for changing the world. I want to give you a biblical plan for changing the world. I was actually raised in South Louisiana, uh, right outside of New Orleans, Louisiana. I was born and raised Roman Catholic. We were very religious Roman Catholics. We went to church on Sunday. If we missed church on Sunday, we went to confession on Saturday. I walked in on Sunday expecting the peace of God to come over me. And then from Monday to Saturday, I lived like I wanted. And I realized that doesn't just happen in the Catholic church. It happens in the Baptist church. It happens in the Episcopal church. It happens in the Assembly of God church. I didn't know who Jesus was intimately, but I knew who he was uh, practically. I'd studied about him in catechism and parochial schools. Well, I got a scholarship to play basketball at UNC Greensboro, which is not far from here. And uh, literally two weeks before the school started, the girl I'm dating at the time throws a fit. She says, Robbie, there's no way you're going to go that far away to college. And so I opened the phone book up and I found William Carey College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. She was going to LSU. It seemed like a close school. Has anybody heard of William Carey College? Neither had I. And so I... <laughs> I called the coach up. I said, hey, can I come try out for the basketball team? He said, Robbie, it's a few weeks before school. There's no way we have a spot for you. We've run out of scholarships. And uh, hesitantly and providentially, he let me come. And I want to tell you, that day, my mom was there with me. I had Michael Jordan-like reflexes. She told me after it, I'd never seen you play that good before or even since that time, Robbie. And by God's grace, <clears throat> by God's grace, the coach called me back and he said, we're going to give you a full ride to play basketball at William Carey College. Two weeks into the semester, the girl I'm dating thinks I'm cheating on her, which I wasn't, but she thought I was cheating on her, and she breaks up with me. And here I was as a Roman Catholic stuck on the campus of a Southern Baptist University. And you know what that means. I was the target of every evangelism class on campus, right? Uh, <clears throat> who do we tell about Jesus? We tell Robbie, right? And I didn't hide it, to be honest. I would cruise through the campus back then blaring the unedited version of Tupac Shakur through the two 10-inch bazookas in the back of my trunk. The unedited version on the Christian campus, if you can imagine. And uh, I didn't hide uh, my belief system. People shared the gospel with me from a distance. But it wasn't until 1995, a man by the name of Jeremy Brown, I think he was the only one tall enough, I think he was the only one brave enough to come up to me. And he was about 6'5", and he said, Robbie, I know you don't have a desire for Jesus, but if you ever feel that you have been sold out by everyone in your life and you feel like no one is with you, remember that God is with you 
and you can repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And I said, Jeremy, thanks, but no thanks. And so I would remember that seven years later. Just a side note, never underestimate the sowing of the seeds of the gospel in the life of lost people. I'm just telling you guys, yeah, praise God. I was the last person that would ever come to Christ. I graduated from college in 1995. I started a computer business, it went belly up. And then I decided I didn't want to do anything in the world. I started to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You guys familiar with like this UFC, no hold bars kind of fighting. And so I was aspiring to be in the UFC, 1998, 1999. I'm out at a bar club one night, a man walks across and says, hey, would you be interested in being the head bouncer of my club, downtown New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras? Now back then I was 6'6", 290 pounds. I said, let me get this straight. You're gonna pay me to fight? I'm in, right? It seemed like a good business opportunity. And so I did that for about three months. It was, a, it was an amazing three months of my life. I decided I needed a career change. When I was escorting two guys to the parking lot and they were saying uh, comments I'm not able to repeat here. And uh, when they got to their car, one of the guys reached under his seat. He pulled out a loaded nine millimeter, pointed it at my head and said, now tell me what the, to do. I thought I probably need a career change. So I made a lateral move from bouncing to bartending, <laughs> right? <laughs> Great new business venture. I went from outside to inside the bar and was coming home from work November 22nd, 1999. An 18-wheeler came across two lanes of traffic on the high rise of New Orleans and sandwiched my car into the guardrail at 65 miles an hour. I was in his blind spot. Uh, my seatbelt locked, my, black, my back herniated in two places, two places in my neck. And I went to the doctors and they sent me home with four things. I was 22 years old and never taken drugs before in my life. And I left that day with four things, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And you know the story, within, within three months I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I don't want to make money, I don't want to be successful, I, I just want to get high. And, I would go through the drugs that were supposed to last me 30 days and two weeks, and I had to find a way to fuel this insatiable desire I had to get high. And so I met a friend, or so-called friend in the city, who said to me, why are you fooling with pharmaceutical drugs when you can buy street drugs? You can buy heroin and cocaine, you can buy it in bulk, you can bag it up, and you can sell it. And so I started an illegal import business in the year 2000. I was trafficking everything from heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, GHB, Special K, uh, that's not a cereal, uh, marijuana and other things uh, into the city of New Orleans. And I, I'm not telling you this to impress you, but I really just want to impress upon you just how far the Lord has brought me from. Uh, times were good in the beginning, I have to be honest, we had tons of money, uh, we did what we wanted, we bought what we wanted, we flew wherever we wanted to go. Uh, but then in the year 2000, my first friend died of a heroin overdose with a needle still in his arm. And from 2000 to 2003, when I was in that world, I lost not one or two friends, I lost eight friends from drug and alcohol related deaths. Six of my friends went to jail, the cops started to catch on to the operation. I ran out of money, I couldn't fuel the habit, and so I went to my father's wallet when he wasn't looking and I memorized his credit card. And over the course of the next few months, I charged on my mom and dad's account $15,000. I almost bankrupted my family. I'll never forget the phone call when my mom called. I still remember it as if it was yesterday. She said, Robbie, we found out what you did. Your father is furious with you, and I am disappointed. Don't ever come to this house again. And I want to tell you, in hindsight, that tough love by mom and dad saved my life. 
If you're in here today and you're dealing with an addiction or a family member who's on drugs or alcohol, one of the things I tell people all the time is this. Whenever you see someone perpetuating a drug addiction, it's always because there's an enabler involved. And just a sidebar here. If you continue to be their savior, Jesus never can. It was tough, I have to admit, for the next three months of my life, I lived without water, gas, and electricity in my house. We mastered the art of the cold shower. We'd get into freezing cold water in the middle of winter and the freezing cold outside and no air, hot air in the house, and I would lather up and get back in. I did that for almost three months because we're more interested in getting high than paying the bills. And finally, I found myself in the living room of my parents' front room, and I begged them to take me in. And by God's grace, two unbelieving parents took me back in and took me to rehab. Long story short, two rehab treatments later, I remembered, November 12, 2002, I remembered what Jeremy Brown told me seven years before. And it wasn't even in a church service. It wasn't in a revival. It was in my room. I got on my knees, and I said, God, if you're real, I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to give my life to you. Uh, I'm not trying to make a deal with you. I'm going to go after you with the same intensity I went after to get high in the world. I'm going all in for you. And I want to tell you, I had a 24-hour Paul-like conversion. People said, how real was it? It was so real to me. But the next day I went to my dad, who's Roman Catholic, and I said, Dad, God's called me into the ministry. I didn't even know what, what that meant because I knew that the day God saved me, he called me. I knew I was going to give my life to him. My dad is thinking in his mind, son, what are you smoking? You know, <laughs> the ministry of all things. And, and he says to me, not unknowingly, he says, how are you going to get married by being a priest? <laughs> With the necktie and the garb and the, and, the, and the outfit. And I said, Dad, no, not a priest. Well, here's what happened in my life, and it's very common in the church today. I wandered for the next eight or nine months. Now, I went to church, and I knew I should read the Bible, but I didn't know how. Anybody been there? I I knew that I should memorize Scripture, but I didn't know how. I I knew wrote prayers. I knew the Our Father and the Hail Mary, but I didn't know how to have an intimate prayer life with the Lord. And so I was in the summer of 2003, and I'm wandering through church, and I'm at Edgewater Baptist Church. Jim Shaddix is the pastor. A guy named T-Bone is leading a Bible study. I was expecting this burly guy. I walked in, I found Tony Marita. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyway, I love Tony. Tony was there, and, and I started to pray, and someone came up to me in the summer, and they said, you're like a disciple. You're like a sponge. You need someone to invest in you. And I said, do people still do that? And she said, if you pray for it. And so I prayed fervently. I, 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 fervently. I prayed intimately. God, send someone to disciple me. In August of 2003, I'll never forget it, I was leaving church and David Platt walks across and says, hey, Robbie, God has placed you on my heart. Would you want to meet once a week to study the Bible, memorize scripture and pray? I said, David, I'd love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? And David taught me so many things. We met for the next two and a half years. First, it was just he and I meeting together. And then after that, we met in a group over the next year and a half. David was very instrumental in my life. He baptized me. Uh, David uh, stood in my wedding. David took me to Indonesia, my first mission trip. David gave me a passion for school. He challenged me to go to seminary. He challenged me to get an advanced degree. And so here's, what, here's the point of all that. I am the product of disciple-making. And I always ask myself the question, how different would my life be today if I was never discipled by David Platt? And here's the answer to the question. I wouldn't be here. 
And the good question for us to ask is how different would our lives be today if men and women got serious about investing in us? Now, it's a hard question to answer because in a room this size, roughly 50% would say, I've never had anybody invest in me. And so we can't change the past. But here's the challenge for us as we go forward. Here's what I want to challenge you with. How different would your church be if you as a pastor leader, if you as an older woman, if you as a young man got serious about making disciples? I think we would have a reformation in our churches. I think we would have a revival. And that's why I want to make a bold statement as we begin our time together. I believe a return to discipleship will enact the reformation of the 21st century. Now, that's a bold statement, I know it is, but listen to me. Why do I say that? Think of the reformation back in Martin Luther's day. Any man, any woman, any background, any color, any creed could take the word of God, inspired by the spirit of God, fill with the spirit of God, and understand the word of God. You didn't need a priest, a prophet, or a pope. You could do it yourself, empowered by the spirit. Discipleship works the same way, right? Any man or woman, any background, any socioeconomic class, any testimony, any situation, any circumstance, urban uh, context, in the city, uh, in the country, it works everywhere, can invest their lives in someone else. And I really believe that will bring about the reformation of the 21st century. And so what I want to show you today is a strategy that Jesus gave us for making disciples. Now, here's what I know about discipleship. Before we can make disciples, we have to define discipleship. Why? Because the definition of discipleship we have, don't miss this, will determine the kind of disciples we make, right? So the definition we have leads to the kind of disciples we make. And if we don't define the terms, our conversations can be as useless as those at the top of the Tower of Babel if we don't define the terms. Why? Because we're going to be speaking the same terms, but communicating in a different language. Because you and I both know, discipleship is a buzzword today, right? And so let me give you a biblical definition, I think, of what disciple making is. And this is a framework by which everything we do flows from. Here it is. Disciple making is intentionally, every word means something, intentionally equipping believers, it's a key word, with the word of God, through accountable relationships, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. Let me say it again. Intentionally equipping believers with the Word of God, through accountable relationships, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. Now, where did I get that from? I got that from Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew 28. This is a very familiar passage. But I want to come at it with a different perspective today on a section of it which has puzzled me for so long, and that's the beginning. So if you're at Matthew 28 and you get to verse 16, you could say word. We get excited about studying the word. We know it's the word that changes our life, and so we love to study the word of God. Aren't you excited to be at a conference where the word is unapologetically spoken, amen? We, don't, we live in a day and age today where the Bible's a footnote, right? Uh, and thankfully these brothers, and I know them well, uh, hold high the word of God. Verse 16, if you're there, say word. Say it like you mean it. Just lets me know if you guys are awake in the balcony. Here we go, the word of the Lord. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. 
when they saw him and worshiped, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now that is puzzling, right? They worshiped, some doubted. We'll get back to that. And Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Let me pray as we begin. Father, I thank you for the great salvation that you have given us in Jesus Christ. And I'm grateful, God, that you came looking for me when I was not looking for you. And God, although we don't have the same testimony, all of us are in here today gathered around the truth that we are sinners who desperately are in need of a Savior. And we are desperately still in need of your grace, even though we are saved. And so we pray, God, give us listening ears to hear. We want you to be the teacher. We'll be the student. We pull a seat up to your table. Speak to us now. We are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let me divide our our section uh, of Scripture into three uh, truths that I want you to see. Three insights that are really revealing. Here's the first one. Write it down. The posture of the disciples. Did you notice the posture of the disciples? Up to this point, when Jesus says to them, go therefore and make disciples, this is not theoretical discipleship here. This is not something that is a foreign concept to them. Every miracle Jesus performed, every lesson Jesus taught, every healing Jesus did, all led up, it all culminated to this one command. And so here's what Jesus is doing. He's not telling them to do something that is foreign to them. Here's a good adage. I know we're ready for these, so here they come. Here's a good adage. You can't expect from others what you're not emulating yourself. Brother Pastor, listen to me. If you're not reading the Word of God, how can you expect your people to get in the Word until the Word gets into them? If you're not spending time in communication with the Lord through prayer, how can you expect your people to be a praying people? If you're not kind and fighting social justice and reaching out for those who are less fortunate, those who are less privileged, or those who are challenged in different contexts, in different communities, how can you expect your people to do that? If you're not on fire for Jesus, don't miss this. How can you expect your kids to ever be? So we emulate, don't miss this, what we expect from other people. So when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples, he's already lived this. Now, that's pretty easy for us to understand. The challenging part is the doubting part. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, has that bothered anybody? I mean, I mean who, who is doubting Jesus? I mean, how could they be doubting who Jesus is? Let me define the word before I give you what I think is going on. That word doubt means also waver. You can write down waver. It means to question the reliability of something. The BDAG, a very reliable lexicon, suggests that the word can also mean to be uncertain in taking a particular course of action. And so here's the question. What are they doubting? 
Now, you may say they're doubting if it's Jesus or not, that we don't know if this is the real Jesus. Or you could say some may be even doubting his identity. Is Jesus the Son of God? Remember, he had to constantly correct them. Well, I am God (laughs) before Abraham was. I am, right? And you may think that, and I kind of thought that through the years until I preached the sermon series a couple years ago called Discourses After Death. And a lot of people preach the seven sayings of the cross leading up to the cross, but I wanted to know what Jesus said after the cross. You ever thought about that? And so I preached this series, Discourses After Death, and I found that by the time Jesus is meeting with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, guess how many times he has appeared to them in the resurrected form? Guess what encounter this is? This is the fourth encounter. John chapter 20, remember in that upper room, they're locked in. Jesus walks through the wall and meets with his disciples. Then in John 20, Thomas is not there. Then in John 20, later in the chapter, we see Jesus once again meeting and Thomas says, unless I see, unless I touch, I'm not going to believe, right? And then we see John 21 on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is cooking them a Cajun meal. We know Jesus was a Cajun. Why? Because he ate fish for breakfast. I'm from New Orleans. At least I like to think that. But Jesus liked a good grilled or blackened fish, right? So he's preparing a meal. That's the third encounter, right? So this is the fourth encounter. They cannot be questioning or, or, or doubting if it's Jesus. They know it's Jesus. So here's the question. What are they doubting? Here's what I think they're doubting. I think they're doubting themselves. Because you and I both know that worship and doubt cannot coexist. Or let me say another way. Doubt and faith or fear and faith cannot coexist. You're either going to worship or you're going to doubt. And so we have this dichotomy in the text. Some worshiped and some doubted here. Now, what are they doubting? They're doubting the fact that they can do this thing. I mean, think about what they just saw. Their master, their leader, has just been crucified for the cause that they're going to carry on. And so they're probably saying one to another, "Can, can we do this thing? I mean, I don't even think I know all the answers to the questions they're going to ask me. Or, or Jesus, what if they imprison us? Or what if they persecute us, right? I mean, these are logical questions. Or, or even worse, Jesus, what if they do to us what they did to you? And I believe in between the text, you can almost see Jesus saying, shh. Knowing that, feel the weight of this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, the reason Jesus moves them, don't miss this, from the posture of doubt to the providence of God is he's showing them that the battle has already been won. See what he's saying here? So so, so write down the posture of the disciples, which he transitions to the providence of God. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Aren't you glad of that today? Now, why does he start with that? Because he knew it'd be tough. Disciple-making is not for wimps. (laughs) It's difficult. Why? Because we're working with people. People are messy. You're messy. I'm messy, right? But in the Great Commission, did you notice there are four inclusive words, all? Four inclusive times you see the word all. Do you see it? What does he say? Look Look at the text. 
all authority. Make disciples of all nations. We are to teach people what? All, to observe all that I've commanded you. And finally, I will be with you all the time. You, you see this entire commission packaged in, in the inclusive word all. Jesus owns it all, and he says, I own it all, not only in heaven, but also on earth. Now, now what does he mean when he talks about owning it all in heaven? It, it brings our mind to Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Well, let me give you a pop quiz here. When you look at the Jesus of the gospel here. Do you view Jesus, if, if, there's a, if there's a pendulum here, the middle being all God, all man. Just follow me for a moment. I know the hypostatic union is he is all man and all God. I get that. But for a moment, practically, just follow me. If you cannot choose the middle, all God, all man, and this side is the God side, and this side is the man side, where do you view Jesus? Where is the pendulum for you right now? If you can't choose the middle, as you read the Gospels. Now, I have to be honest, in my own life, in my own studies through seminary, that pendulum has switched back and forth, right? The right answer, as we know, he's all God and all man. But, but think about this. For most of us in here today, you would agree with me probably that I view him more as all God. Would you say that? I view him more on the God side, the divinity of Jesus. Do you know that's the exact opposite of the first century disciples? See, they knew he was a man. Jesus spent all his time convincing them he was God. Right? Remember in John chapter 8, verse 53, they said, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Jesus said in John 8, 58, what? Before Abraham was, I what? I am. In case you missed it, Jesus in John 10, 29, my father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And I think what he's saying here now is because of his death, burial, and resurrection, all the authority in heaven is realized now in the resurrected son. That there is a completeness now where Jesus says, all the authority in heaven is mine. Always was mine, now it's realized in this resurrected form. I love what our children say as we were teaching our kids about the sovereignty of God recently. And we taught them this line. It's a simple line, but there's a lot of theology in the line. We taught them, God is large and he's in charge, right? It's very simple, but, but there's a lot of theology. Think about it, he's large, <laughs> he owns it all. But he's in charge of all things. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge of heaven, but I'm also in charge of earth. Now, hold your place there and just kind of look over to the right to the Gospel of Mark. I learned this in my first year hermeneutics class. Dr. Chuck Quarles, who's now a professor at Southeastern, and uh, Dr. Brown were teaching me hermeneutics. And I'll never forget this walkthrough of the authority of Jesus through the book of Mark. I want to give it to you now. Mark, among other things, was trying to get across to the Roman Empire who had all authority in their own mind, that there's only one who has authority, and his name is Jesus. And he does that in just a systematic way. Look at verse 13. Write down, Jesus has authority over the animals. Jesus has authority over the animals. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with 
the wild animals. As Dr. Quarrel said, that word with there in the language of the New Testament is not just meaning hanging out with animals. Because you and I both know, if we go in the wilderness with wild animals, it's not going to be good for us. Because we know the saying, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, that's a bad thing. (laughs) It's a bad thing. But in the language of the New Testament, that word with there gives us the idea that Jesus is in harmony with the animals. That the animals are in communion with him, right? But he goes on. Not only does he have authority over the animals, he has authority over the angels. And the angels were ministering to him. Now we know from Psalm 2.8 that man is created a little lower than the angels. And yet here we see that Jesus has superiority because the angels are ministering to him. But he goes on. Jesus 1.22 has authority to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because unlike the scribes, Jesus was teaching them as one having authority. Now, what does this mean? In the first century, the way a rabbi would teach, a way a sage would teach is this. He would quote someone from the years before him, maybe a rabbi, who would come before them. So Jesus, in a sense, would say, I'm quoting Rabbi Hillel, who's quoting Rabbi Gamliel, or quoting Rabbi Akiva. We do it today. I'm quoting John MacArthur, who's quoting Mark Dever. We would do that today to gain authority to our message. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, "Uh, you've heard it said this way, but I say to you. And the scribes and Pharisees are blown away because Jesus is prophetically, Jesus is sovereignly speaking truth to them. They've never heard teaching like this. He has authority to teach. Verse 34, chapter 1, he has authority over nature and authority over the demons. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. He exercised authority because they knew him. He has authority to forgive sins. Chapter 2, verse 10, which is it easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. You may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Jesus says, I'm going to show you something visible to prove to you something supernatural. You can't see the forgiveness of sins, but I'll prove it to you through the healing of this man. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. I love chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus has authority to give authority. (laughs) Look what it says. He calls the 12 to to himself so he might might go out and preach and have what? Authority to cast out demons. Robbie, what are you saying? Time and time again, Jesus is exercising his authority. It's another way to say his sovereignty. Friends, listen to me. You and I need to have a healthy view of the sovereignty of God. There are no accidents in God's economy. And someone said, describe to me the sovereignty of God. It's kind of like a curtain on the stage of a play, like that black curtain that's behind the scenes. You never notice the black curtain unless it's not there. But it's always there behind the play as the people act out different parts. That's kind of, in my mind, like the sovereignty of God. It is the backdrop to everything we do. God's always in control, amen? He's still the commander-in-chief despite who's in office. Aren't you glad of that? I heard of a husband watching a football game. It was their favorite team playing. And the husband was on the couch waiting for his wife. They were going to take a long road trip. She was packing and getting ready. And so he turns on the television and he notices their favorite football team is playing. And about two minutes left in the game, they are down by two touchdowns. 
He's about to turn it off, but he has time to spare, and so he's watching the football game. And he notices that miraculously his team comes back, literally to the last seconds of the game, the quarterback drops back. He throws a Hail Mary pass into the end zone. The receiver dives into the end zone, catches the ball. They win the game against all odds. He turns off the television. He yells to his wife, honey, you ready to go? They pack the car. They go on the trip. A few hours into the trip, she's scrolling through the radio, and she finds the rebroadcast of the game. And they start watching the game. And about two minutes left, she reaches over, and she says, I'm going to turn this off because they're not going to win. And the husband says... No, let's leave it. She says, why? They're never going to come back. He said, I bet you. (laughs) I bet you they do. She said, there's no way they're going to come back. They're down by two touches. There's no way they're going to come back. And as it had happened before, this is how it played out. They scored a touchdown, and with a few minutes left or less than a minute left, they kick an onside kick. They get the ball back. The quarterback drops back, ticking seconds on the clock. He throws this pass into the end zone. Once again, the receiver dives in, grabs the ball, pulls it to his chest. They win the game. The wife is watching the husband the whole time. He is sitting there calm, cool, and collected. She is a nervous wreck, right? Sweat is dripping from her her head, and she looks over to him, and she says, what is wrong with you? What is wrong? What is wrong with you? You're not moving. You're not anxious. You're not nervous. At the end of the game, he leans over to her and he says, honey, I knew the end of the game. She said, he said, I knew how it ended before we began. Friends, don't miss for the born again believer in here today. Aren't you glad we win in the end? Aren't you glad of that? We win in the end, right? Jesus Christ has conquered death, hell, and the grave. We're on the winning team. Here's what he says. Just go out and play the game. Have fun. Have joy. Be satisfied because we win in the game. I know the world looks bleak. I know that times are difficult, but we win in the end. Aren't you glad of that? Praise the Lord for that. Friends, that's what the sovereignty of God does. When you have a healthy view of the sovereignty of God, you realize that God is in control of all things. But that's not where we end. See, if we would end there, it would be a great encouragement for us. But Jesus is very practical. He says, okay, guys, I control everything. Now, let me give you a plan. So he moves them from the posture of the disciples. He moves them to see the providence of God, and then he gives them a plan of action. And the plan of action is divided into two sections. The first is to make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go, therefore, and make decisions. We've done well at that through the years. He doesn't say, go, therefore, and make converts. We've really focused on that through the years. He doesn't even say, though, go therefore make Christians. It's one of the biggest misnomers of, of the past few years is that we have been focused on making Christians. Unfortunately, Jesus has spent his time making disciples. And I'll prove it to you. Do you know how many times the word Christian is used in the New Testament? Three. 
Two of those times, it's actually used in a derogatory manner, term of derision, according to Harper's Dictionary. Only in Peter is it used actually in a positive light. Now, I'm not di- don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we should identify with being Christians. But the word Christian is a descriptive word. The word disciple is dynamic. Guess how many times, you're going to love this, guess how many times the word disciple is used in the New Testament? How many times do we find the word 269? 238 times in the Gospels alone. And so the question is, what is Jesus interested in us trying to to create? He wants us to make disciples. Now, there's a difference between a stative word, Christian, and a dynamic word, disciple. Why? Because a disciple is a learner. Do you know the Greek word mathetaeus from disciple is where we get the English word mathematics? Mathetaeus, mathematics. And it gives us this idea of, of discipline, of learning. Everyone in here is a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're born again, the question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Are you learning or are you stagnant, right? And so Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. Now, who is he talking to? Is he talking to seminary students? Is he talking to trained pastors? Is he talking to theologians? Is he talking to professors? No. He's talking to average, ordinary men who will go out with this message of discipleship, and they needed direction. And here's why they needed direction. Because most people in the pews of our churches, I believe, want to make disciples. Wouldn't you agree? They want to be closer to the Lord. They want an intimate relationship with God. Here's the reason our people are not taking the next step on a discipleship pathway. Here's what I believe. Because they don't know what to do. Wouldn't you agree? And when people don't know what to do, guess what they don't do? They don't do anything. They don't do anything. So they just suffer from analyzing everything, and they think, well, I want to make disciples. I want to take the next step, but I don't know what to do. Now, this doesn't just happen in churches. This happens in the Southern Baptist Convention. A couple years ago, we had a booth at our national convention, and uh, we were right behind the bookstore of Lifeway. We had our entire Life uh, Replicate team there, and we asked one question to every pastor we talked to. Now, these are some of the reputable and respected pastors all throughout our convention. And we asked them the same question. I'll ask it to you. Here's what we asked them. Do you have a comprehensive plan for making disciples in your local church? Keyword comprehensive. Keyword intentional. You know, an intentional comprehensive plan for making disciples in the church. We polled roughly 50 pastors at the convention three years ago. Guess how many pastors said yes? Zero. Now, in defense, one pastor did say, we have gathered all the data. (laughs) We just don't know what to do with it. So you're probably wondering, like me, for years, why have we not focused on disciples? We've focused on decisions. We've focused on converts. We haven't focused on disciples. And I think I found the culprit to the discipleship coma for the last 400 years. Now, let me give you the disclaimer before we start. Mark, no offense to your former church folks, but I love the King James Version of the Bible. I have, to give this, I have to give this disclaimer to people because I love the King James Version of the Bible. Did you hear what I just said, right? Because I've done this before without giving that disclaimer, and I've gone through a laundry list of emails. But anyway, so don't send me an email. I love the King, in fact, I love the King James Version so much that recently I got into a hobby collecting Bible leaves. Is anybody familiar with this Bible leaf collection? Mark loves it, by the way, but anybody else for me? Here's what happens. Through time, the, the, the ravages of time will take a toll on Bibles from years past. 
And, and so what happens is because the, the binding falls apart or the, or the covers fall off, pages and sections of Bibles fall apart. And so you're not going to buy a 1529 Bible of Martin Luther's German uh, New Testament with the book of Revelation missing. You're not going to buy it with Massa or, or the whole gospel missing. So what they do is they take these pages that have fallen out the Bible and you can actually purchase them. And I use them in my preaching classes and I have them on my walls to teach with. I like to call it Bible or baseball card collecting for pastors, right? At least that's what I tell my wife. She doesn't agree with it. But anyway, so, so I collect these Bible and it's great because it's a piece of history. These are actual Bible leaves from times past. And my prized possession, if you come to my office, is an actual 1523 Martin Luther German Pentateuch. It's the actual page of, of Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife. There's only three of them in the world. And so I have the three complete Bibles in the world. So I have this. I have a 1529 Martin Luther German New Testament. I have a 1580 Geneva's Bible. I have a 1551 Matthew's Bible. I have a 1552 Tyndale's Bible. I have a Coverdale's Bible. I have a Bishop's Bible. And in one spot on the wall, I have the coveted 1611 original he version of the King James Bible. I love the King James Bible. If you, did I say that? Yeah. I love the King James Bible. 45 scholars gathered together in six committees in three different cities, Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge. They came together for three years, and they worked from the Hebrew and Greek to come together with a translation to present to the king. They went to a committee that edited that translation for another three whole years before spending, get this, nine months to go to press. It took them nine months to print the first Bible as they gave as a gift to King James. I love the King James version of the Bible. It was the Bible that stood the test of time for 300 years. No Bible rivaled it until the early 1920s. However, however, when the translators decided to translate Matthew 28, 18 through 20, they translated one word differently that I think is the culprit for the discipleship coma for 300 to 400 years. I want to read to you the original King James Version of the Bible, and here's how they translate the word mathetaeus or mathetaeu, which is translated, get this, in every new version, including the new King James, make disciples. NIV, make disciples. Holman, ESV, make disciples. New American Standard, make disciples. New Revised Version, make disciples. Even every other new version, make disciples. But this version, the original, search it online, Matthew 28, 19. Here's what it says. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now I know what you're thinking. Isn't teaching making disciples? And it is. Partly. Could the reason that we haven't had a discipleship emphasis through the years is because we have taken the banner of teaching to the nations and we have taught well. And I'm not minimizing teaching. I'm teaching right now. But you and I both know that discipleship is way more than teaching, right? Discipleship is not a class you take. Get this. Discipleship is not a 40-day study. Discipleship is not a 12-week class. Discipleship is not a degree that you earn. Discipleship is not a program that you sign up for. I like to tell people, discipleship is not a class you take. Don't miss this. It's the course of one's life. It's the course of your life. It's a natural part of one's life. What I'm about to share with you guys and, and girls is the greatest aha moment of my entire ministry. I learned it as a young pastor at Brainerd Baptist Church. 
I'd gotten a brand new Baptist church and there was a number of people pretty similar to the size of this crowd coming to the church I was pastoring. I was overwhelmed with the responsibility of being a pastor. But I was also feeling simultaneously the pressure of growing a church. You've been there before. The pressure of using business metrics to gauge biblical maturity. And the way you gauge business metrics in the church is by how big your church grows, right? And so I got into this routine of trying to grow a church, right? And I implemented, as other people did, I was the pressure of implementing what I call escalator evangelism. Have you heard about this? You know it well. You've seen it before. Here's what the idea is. You invite this brother to come to your church on Sunday to enjoy the wonderful uh, presentation of the gospel or, or, or even ministries or services that you have. And you invite this brother to come to church, but you only invite him. Why? Because you're not interested in him. You're interested in him inviting the next person that he knows behind him, right? And so you say, hey, listen, bring your friend next week. Pack a pew Friday. Bring a friend Wednesday, right? Potluck on Sunday. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But what happens is I wouldn't say it vocally, but I would think about it internally. I'm not really worried about you because I'm worried about you. And then I invite you to come to church on Sunday next week to bring your friend to come to church for a special event so that I can say, not saying, but intimately knowing that I'm not worried about you, I'm worried about you. And here's what happens with that form of ministry. People will go out of the back door of your church as fast as they come in the front door of your church. Has anybody seen this before? I've pastored these these churches before and felt the pressure of this in, in the ministry today. And here's what the Lord showed me, and this was the radical shift of my ministry. I want to share this with you. Here's what the Lord showed me through prayer. Robbie, you focus on the depth of your people, the people you have, the undiscipled believers in the church who is an untrained army that can finish the Great Commission task already there. They're staring at you every single day you pray. You worry about the depth of those people. And I'll grow the breath of your ministry. See the difference? That's not what people are hearing today in the world. Young pastors are hearing, you grow the breath of the church and let people worry about the depth of themselves. Friends, we don't grow anybody, amen? God grows people. What we can do is create an environment in our churches for people to grow. Here's the challenge I think that's happened through the years. We have done really good or really focused our efforts. Don't miss this on showing people how to share their faith, but we haven't taught them how to share their life. It's a big difference, right? Anybody can get together an Amway presentation for Christianity and the courage to do that, but it's difficult to share one's life with another person. And we keep making people feel bad because they're not evangelistic. I believe the evangelism problem in our conventions today and our churches is not an evangelism problem. It's a discipleship problem. Here's why. Because what pastors say is, you need to win more people to Jesus. You need to share the gospel. You need to go out and and sow seeds into the world. And our people are saying, I don't know what to do. I'm not even motivated to do that. Why? Here's why. They're drawing from an empty well. We used to have evangelism explosion at our church. I used to pastor. And nothing against evangelism explosion. Just did an interview with the D. James Kennedy Center. Great ministry. It's a great tool, right? I mean, it's a tool. Uh, Maybe not a great tool. A good tool is a tool to use. uh, (laughs) The greatest tool is is your life and the gospel, obviously. There's a tool to use. 
And we polled people in our church, and if people were honest, and we had about 20 or 25 who would gather on Monday and knock on doors and share the gospel, if you die today, where would you go, heaven or hell? And they were good at that, but it never grew beyond 20. And our people kept saying, well, look, nobody's serving in our church. It's only 20 people. And if you would ask those people to be honest with you about that evangelism explosion ministry, you know what they would tell you their favorite visit is? Think about this. Guess what their favorite visit was when they went out? When no one was home. (laughs) Ask them. Why? Because they felt like they were bothering people. But watch this. If you start with a disciple first ministry, What happens is you lead people through example and through the word of God to fall in love with Jesus. And you get someone in your church to fall in love with Jesus and his word, you can't shut them up. I'm just telling you, right? They want to tell people about what Jesus did. They're going to raise a holy hand in worship, right? They're going to be more generous in their giving. They're going to be more consistent in their going. It's a different philosophy. It's a disciple first ministry. You know, I'm convinced when we stand before the Lord, at the end of time, God's not going to be impressed with how big our churches are, how big our budgets are, how big our buildings are, no offense to the buildings or the budgets. Friends, when God determines the effectiveness of the church, he doesn't count the Christians within. He weighs them. What do you mean he weighs them? He wants to see the biblical maturity of the people within. Jesus showed us in the Gospels, anybody can draw a crowd, right? So how do we change the focus? Let me give you one way to change your focus. Remember this, and this is revolutionary for me and for others, but baptism is not the finish line, it's the starting line. It's not the finish line. Most people think we got them baptized, high five, it's over. That's the beginning of the spiritual journey for people. See, if you seek to make disciples, you'll always build the church. But if you seek to grow a church, you rarely produce disciples. You ever knew that? You ever thought about that? But if you seek to make disciples, you always get the church. And so what Jesus says here is make disciples of all nations. Finally, trust the Lord in all situations. Did you know there are actually two imperatives in the Great Commission? Did you know this? I always thought there was one. You you know what it is. What is it? Make disciples. This is how I look at it. Make disciples is the mantle by which the legs, the participles, hold up the mantle of discipleship. So this is the foundation of all we do. The way we do that is threefold, going, baptizing, and teaching. But do you know in verse 20 there's another imperative? So not only is make disciples the imperative, the second imperative, you can look it up in verse 20, is lo, (laughs) behold, Surely. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying? Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. Surely I'm with you to the end of the age. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus knew that discipleship would be tough. So he says, whenever you feel like you want to throw in the towel, look to me and remember that I'm with you. Whenever you feel like the, the, the burden of sharing life with another person becomes unbearable, look to me, I'm with you. Lo, I'm with you, imperative to the end of the age. I want to finish with this because I think this is the most important, important part of discipleship, and that is this. Whenever you're making disciples, remember what Jesus said. Teach them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. This is not intellectual assent here. We're not teaching people to understand the Bible or just know the Bible. We want people to live the Bible. 
It is obedience-based discipleship. Now, in order to live the Bible, you have to know the Bible. So we like to say, you know, we like little sayings. Here's a saying that's kind of the mantra of our church. We want to get in the Word of God until the Word of God gets into us. So I want to challenge you. You get in the Word until the Word... And listen, do not underestimate what the power of the Word can do in the lives of men and women. The Word is a powerful sword that we wield in our battle and also in our equipping of the saints. The Word is powerful by itself. I heard of a story of a South American missionary who was a Gideon. I confirmed this story. I know it's going to seem unusual and surprising, but I confirmed this story with a man who actually saw the Bible I'm going to tell you about. It was a South American missionary, Gideon, who would go around South America handing out those little Gideon Bibles. You've seen these before. And he went to a small village up in the mountains, and he noticed that uh, there were people who were receptive to the receiving of the Bible, but there was one man who was standoffish, and he asked about the man, and they said, this is the local drug dealer in town. This is the kingpin of all the drug distribution. He's ruining our town. He's ruining our community. And so the Gideon pastor walks over, and he says, hey, would you be interested in having one of these Bibles? I'm going to give you this Bible. The man pushes back. He looks at it. He pushes back. He says, no, I don't want that. He says, would you read the Bible? He says, no, I'm not going to read it. He said, in fact, if you give me that Bible, the only thing I'll do is take that thin paper and roll joints with it. I'll I'll rip it out and roll joints with it and smoke it. Well, the missionary thought quick, and he thought, I don't mind if you smoke it, but if you make a promise to me that before you smoke it, you'll read it. To which the man said, sure, I need rolling paper. So he took the Bible, and uh, the man left. True story. Man left, came back a few years later. He came back to the same town to, to see how the people were doing, and there was a revival that had broke out, broken out in this town. And he started to ask, what happened? And they said, you're never going to believe. The local drug dealer has gotten saved, and he's now the preacher of the community. He's now the pastor of the... So he wanted to find out what happened. So he goes to this man, and he says, listen, what happened? And the man says, do you want me to be honest with you? He said, yes. He said, well, I smoked through Matthew. (laughs) And then I smoked through Mark. He said, said, then I smoked through Luke. He said, I just kind of smoked all the way through Luke. He said, but I could not smoke through John. John smoked me. Friends, it's the power of the Word of God. Yeah, praise the Lord. It's the power of the Word of God. He said, I read through John. I realized I was a sinner who needed a Savior. I realized that I was dead and I needed to be born again. And God did a work in my life, and I am forever changed. It is the power of the Word of God. You know, in life, there are only three things that are eternal. Three things that will last forever. Here they are. God, His Word, and the souls of men and women. Only three things. God, his word, and the souls of men and women. Wouldn't you like to leave a lasting legacy long after you're gone? Not on the pages of books that you've written or even on the sermons that you've constructed. How about we leave a lasting legacy in the hearts of the men and women we discipled? I think that's a God-honoring task. Amen? Father, we love you. We are grateful that you not only gave us a message, but you gave us a model. You gave us a mission. 
Lord, we don't have to leave disciple-making to chance because, Jesus, you showed us how to do that. And I pray, God, that you would energize and engage the men and women who have taken two days to be here. And this would not just be a conference, but they'd go back with great notes and sermon points, but they would actually be motivated to make Jesus' final words, make disciples, their first work. For we ask it in the only name we know how, and that is the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen.